Welcome to Episode 7 of the Great Lakes Horror Company. This is a podcast produced by the members of the Horror Writers Association Ontario chapter that focuses on writing and the written word in the horror genre, as well as a discussion on horror in its many bloody forms. Let's meet our panelists for today. Hi, I'm Seth Red Jerome, and I'm a horror writer. And uh, right now I have a, I'm working on a series called Witch Upon a Star, which is an erotic horror astrology series. So I hope you all enjoy it. Hello, I'm Anna Cass Kubler. I'm a horror journalist, and I'm the author of the online vampire serial, The Blood Magic Saga. I'm Andrew Robertson. I'm an avid horror fan. And I'm Bill Snyder, host of the radio show After Rot, and author of Poetry Book, Chaptered in First, Poetic and Cursed. So today we're going to talk about visual storytelling, and by visual storytelling I'm not talking about um, art or comics or graphic novels, but how you get your reader to see what you want them to see. Uh, how the author helps you see their world, how they create their world, and most importantly, how the author keeps track of it during the creative process. Uh, and later in the show, we're actually going to have an, a special interview with Mike McCarty of Walking Dead fame, uh, so stay tuned for that. Um, so my first question for our panel today is, when you sit down to write, what are the first steps that you take in character development and setting the scene? And I'm actually going to start uh, with asking Sephra this, because I saw an image online of your workspace, and it's a computer surrounded by Kylo Ren, but also um, a lot of notes on characters, locations, descriptions. So how do you keep track of your worlds that you're creating? Okay, um, right now I am working on a series, so it's more important than ever for me to keep track. But the, the way I write, um, I, I, got, I learned this trick years ago uh, at EerieCon uh, at a panel, which is carrying around cue cards. And basically, um, what you saw was, you know, I'm, I'm into Star Wars, so I'm using my little toys to hold up my cue cards. And basically, my cue cards, um, I use a cue card for each character, and I write little things about them. So I remember, you know, they have blue eyes, green eyes, whatever. Um, and in this particular series, you know, they're based, they're a specific sign of the zodiac, and they have, uh, it's about witches. So each witch has a specific skill, and they're each gonna have a specific boyfriend, and all these things. So you want to keep all these things straight. And for me. I'm old school. I like feeling pieces of paper. When I'm going, oh my god, what color are Maggie's eyes? I can't remember. I just have to look over at my Kylo Ren's, flip through the thing, find Maggie's card, boom, I know. And I know other people do things on computers. I like the hand, um, holding the cue cards. And I do this, like, you know, if they go to a bar, the minute I write down, okay, there's a bar called the Cauldron, I'll make a cue card for that. And how big is this bar? How many tables are in it? And so on. So I try and keep track of my world because I'm not an artist. I can't draw. I wish I could draw all my characters and draw the cities they live in and stuff, but I don't. But the cue cards, I highly recommend that as a tool for whether it's a short story, a novel, whatever. Just write down ideas. And um, also, oh, another thing too that was interesting to me. Uh, what, one time when I interviewed Skip and Spectre back in the '90s, I uh, went to their place and because uh, they wrote together, and it was the first time I'd actually seen, you know, New York bestseller authors' world, uh, how their office was, and. Um, and what they had was a whole wall dedicated to pieces of papers and timelines. And, uh, and since they were working as a partnership, they would each write down what each person had covered in a specific chapter. And it's very, like, all these papers and chalkboards, and, you know, it's just so amazing. So, yeah, writers have very different ways of um, remembering how, you know, um, how to keep track of things. And that, that's basically what I'm doing is keeping track of stuff. 
So Bill, in the world of zombies, do you feel the need to, to keep track, to keep notes, to keep drawings or photographs? Absolutely. Uh, unlike Seth, I like Scrivener, which is a great program that does almost everything that she talks about, but it does it all electronically and on screen where I can just pay zap, 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 zap. I do use a whole lot of visual um, cues, but that's all based on stuff that takes my mind away from what I'm doing so that it takes the little reset to go on and then to keep writing further. Uh, but exactly what Seth had mentioned out about the having notes about individual characters, about world parts, about story components and everything like that, it's a very important uh, part to doing anything that's a longer type fiction. And as I said, Scrivener is a great program for doing that sort of thing. Now, speaking of, of long works of fiction, Monica, you've had a, a serial going for some time now. And over the years that you've been developing it, what are some of the devices that you've used to keep track of where characters were in relationships or appearance or location? All right, I'm not allowed small pieces of paper because uh, <laughs> I would have to staple them to myself in order to not lose them. So uh, much like Bill, I use Scrivener, uh, which does all the same things but electronically, so I don't have to worry about finding sticky notes for my novel under my desk, attached to the dog, <laughs> and every other place that they would end up probably torn into little pieces by my baby. Uh, <laughs> little pieces of paper, no, no go. Uh, the other thing I use, though, is um, I'm a big proponent of using Pinterest to create mood boards for my books. So um, I will pin things there that remind me of scenes, of moments, of characters, of locations, and it's a place for me to go when I just kind of need to mentally refresh and pull myself back into that world. And it's also a nice little thing. I tell my readers where it is and they can kind of go and they can look through all the images that, you know, inspire me to write and that make me think of my story and my characters and whatnot. And it's a way to basically invite them into the world, further into the world and into the process. Um, other than that, I like to create soundtracks for my books. Uh, every chapter has a song that reminds me of the action uh, that, that goes into the cha that chapter. So if I'm feeling a little lost, feeling emotionally like I'm unsure of where, I, where we should be, I'll often throw on the soundtrack and give it a listen. Um, but uh, it's sort of a combination of, of all those things that comes together to, to make you know, the serial writing a cohesive thing in my head. Because, you know, sometimes it's like, I need the song. Sometimes I just need to go and look at some pictures. Sometimes I need to go into my Scrivener notes and look at the Bible to figure out what the heck is going on with this piece of magic that's going on in, you know, in the world that I maybe haven't touched on in a book or so, and I have to now come back to, and I don't quite remember the nuances of it. So I think keeping, if you're going to do any sort of long forms kind of series or serial writing, you know, uh, you live or die by your Bible. <laughs> Yeah, I'd like to address a couple of things Monica said. Um, where I agree with you about sticky notes. I, you, I tried to work with sticky notes a few years ago. They're falling everywhere. They suck. That's why I have the recipe card, the recipe cards, cue cards. I call them cue cards because I remember when I did speeches in grade seven, that's what we used. And I keep them in a box. And then I also have a notebook that matches what's happening in the cue cards. I just wanted to clarify that. I'm not using the sticky notes. And then with what Monica said about Pinterest, absolutely. I use Pinterest too. Go check me out on Pinterest. You'll see all sorts of weird, freaky crap <laughs> that inspired me for my stories. Um, yeah, you can do great research on Pinterest and then the visuals. 
And also like Monica, I'm very influenced by music as well. I have a playlist on YouTube for, um, you know, now we're in modern technology. So now I actually actively make playlists for YouTube for each book. Uh, before it was just the music in my head tormenting me, but now everyone else can be tormented too because it's on the outside of my head. I was actually going to ask that because it seems like a growing movement where authors supply playlists for either chapters or entire books or short works uh, with what they're putting out there. What do you think the advantages are? Um, I think Divergent might have been the first time that I saw that. Um, I don't know. Like for me, I grew up, my parents are musicians. I've always been surrounded by music. Um, and most of my short stories have who song titles. Um, for me, it was just natural that I would just, um, you know, instead of it being on my cassette recorder at home for myself, just throw it on YouTube. And, uh, you know, then other people can see what songs have been rattling around my head while I'm writing these books, which may be interesting or maybe it's not to other people. I don't know, but I th it's fun to make the list. You know, especially when I have actual songs in my novels, then now I'm putting them on the YouTube. And then songs that just inspired me, I put them on the playlist too. Bill, how important is music to you? Do you, do you feel the need to supply a soundtrack to what you're doing, or do you use it as part of your process? Music's always playing around me, but unlike Seth and Monica, I don't provide any soundtracks or whatever online. But I do see that as a great engagement methodology with the readers. Uh, I always have music, but I'm always just random, and everything for me is random. I don't use a specific song that identifies what I'm writing or what I'm doing with, but I always have music playing in the background, even when I'm doing other things that have absolutely nothing to do with what I'm writing. Let's talk more about Pinterest, because that's something that, that I'm not really well versed in, but when you're talking about visuals, storytelling, and you don't want to be super explicit with your fans, but you want them to get an idea of, of what you're looking at in the atmosphere of your books. How have you, what, what have you put up on Pinterest to, uh, to share more of that world with your fans? Um, I'll go and I'll collect uh, vampire images because it's a vampire series. So, you know, there's a lot of images on my Pinterest of, of like fanged mouths, dripping blood. I'll sometimes I'll look for I'll look for pictures of um, you know teenagers on Pinterest that look like my main character um, environments that look like uh, you know environments that the characters move through. Um, I'm working on a new Pinterest board now for a novella I'm working on uh, for an anthology in the summer, and uh, the the piece I'm working on for it is a rural horror story. So. I'm right now I'm pinning like lots of kind of small town kind of you know farmhouses and it's basically for me it's kind of you know getting my head into the visual the visual place of the story so that when I eventually come to write it I can describe it but you're inviting your fans into that by putting it on a public forum what do you what do you see as the benefit of that? Or it's is, more is just, it intentional? It's more just, or? It, you know, it's more for me. I, I do let them know where it is. Um, you know, they, if, if they're going to look at it, they're going to find spoilers in there, though, because, I mean, I'm pinning stuff for all four books, and I'm right in the middle of book three. So there's some stuff in there that, you know, is very spoilery for book four, so proceed with caution. But, you know, I think it's just, you know, in today's day and age, and we've talked about this on a previous show, um, you're kind of always in a conversation with your fan base. That's what social media is. 
So it's just a way to kind of change that conversation a little bit, invite them further into the creative process, just like putting the soundtrack of the book on YouTube is. And, and they get excited about that. I had, a, I had a reader a couple weeks ago message me, and they wanted me to watch a music video because they thought it perfectly exemplified the relationship between my two main characters. And, you know, they wanted to tell me about it and show me it, and maybe I could include it later in, in a, you know, for a chapter. So I think it's anything that helps your readers form a connection with your characters and with your work and keeps them in the world of your work. You know, for me it's important because I write serials. So, you know, there's a, a period of maybe a week that goes, you know, by between a segment before they get the next in, installment. So you want to keep them, you know, anything you can do to keep them in your world, you know, keep them waiting with bated breath for that next bit so that they click back and, you know, continue to check out the book as it, you know, pro progresses further and further towards its conclusion. I think that's, that's logical given the access to technology and the immediacy that everybody wants things. So how true do you find the following statement? Show, don't tell. The less text or audio that an image needs to be understood, the better it is. Well, <clears throat> the, it's a number one rule of writing is showing, don't telling. So if you're just going to tell something, you can just like walk down the street and talk to each other kind of thing. That's just telling. Uh, showing is when you're really engaging with all your senses. Um, you're bringing the reader right into that place. Um, you're not telling the reader you're, they're sitting on the couch. Dude is sitting on the couch and you know, and all the wonderful things he's smelling or doing or seeing or the cat's on his lap, whatever. Um, show It's so important to show in a book. You can turn a reader off so fast um, if you're just telling them stuff. Because it's boring. No one wants to read long laundry lists of things. Um, people want to be engaged. They want to feel you know, the fog, they want to, you know, see the blood, they want to, you know, be scared of that gar gargoyle in the air, you know, they want to feel like it's leathery wings and it's little talons clawing at them, instead of just being told that there's a scary thing flying through the air. And uh, sometimes you need an outside pair of eyes to know that you're telling instead of showing. Sometimes you think you are showing and it's only like if other people are reading your work, if you share your work with a writer's group or whatever, they'll say, hey dude, no, you're not showing at all. You just told me a whole bunch of stuff and now I have a headache. Um, so it, it's a fine line, but it's definitely as you write more and get more professional and have more professional work done, you get much better at showing and it becomes easier that you're not constantly thinking, am I showing or telling? Um, it, it comes a little more naturally, but we all do it. We all get lazy and just tell, tell, tell. And then you have to go back and show, show, show. <laughs> well, I'm very guilty of doing the whole show part, sorry, the uh, tell part, and then I have to re-edit that all out and get rid of all that crap. But on the poetry side, it's the opposite, where it's all about you're trying to express a visceral type of feeling rather than actually trying to tell the story. You're trying to give somebody the impression of what it is you want to try and make them impress upon, not the black car went fast. So the tone and the texture, like a lot of what Seth was just talking about, is an important part of that process to get from point A to point B and what it is that you're trying to express. What they all say. <laughs> now, I actually have a, a specific question for you, Monica, um, as a YA writer. I mean, this goes for, for everyone in the room, but as a YA writer, 
in an era where everyone expects things very immediately. They want to be able to just Google something up, dial it up, have their responses right there, read short, short articles online, and get information, good or bad. What's the best way to bring them into your world, um, and what sort of either sacrifices or devices do you have to use to give them the momentum that they want for a serial or a book or a novel? I write a lot of my YA stuff in the first person, which I think helps because when I'm writing, I put myself in the body of my character. And I come from an acting background originally, so, you know, that's a world of putting yourself in characters, doing monologues and whatnot. So I think for me, it's very natural to kind of throw my, you know, kind of imagine myself in this fictional world, you know, as someone else. Um... For me, the biggest thing that I try to do is, uh, when I'm writing, is each chapter has to do something. If a chapter doesn't have, like, a specific thing it's doing, it's out of there. So I think, you know, making rules for yourself like that makes, makes it so that your work can't really meander because when you go back and look at it and you kind of go, okay, what's the, what's the purpose of that chapter? What's the purpose of that chapter? And you find a, a chapter in your work that, you know, its only purpose is giving you a bunch of background information or something, well, that's a telling chapter and that's going to bore everyone. So, you know, I think a lot of it is coming down to, you know, right from the initial how you're going to structure your work and then, you know, make making sure that you're giving them enough details, but you don't have to describe everything. We don't need to know every brand of clothing a character is wearing. We don't need to know every single thing that's in the room because, you know, there's some shorthand. Everyone knows what a coffee house looks like. Now, you know, you're going to make, you're going to, you know, set the stage a little bit, maybe talk about the art on the walls, talk about the type of furniture. But you don't have to describe every detail of a coffee house because a coffee house is a common, you know, North American human experience and everyone's been in one at some point. So you want to provide enough description, you know, that your, that your, your readers can recognize a place and recognize, you know, its uniqueness in the story. But you don't want to drown them in extraneous details. So you want, you know, there's a lot of things that human beings can fill in the blanks. Because we live in the world and we see the world every day. Now, if you're writing something that's not set in our world and it's truly fantastical and it's weird and it's different, yeah, it's going to require a lot more showing. But, you know, you're going to have to make those judgments as a writer where it's required to bring your reader in and to make your reader connect with, you know, the setting or the event. And where you can use a bit of shorthand because we connect with those settings and events every day already in our day-to-day lives. For this episode's interview, Andrew speaks with our special guest, Mike McCarty, who is an author, a member of the Horror Writers Association, and a special effects makeup expert whose credits include The Walking Dead, Kill Bill, House of Wax, From Dusk Till Dawn, Sin City, Hostel, and The Mist. He's definitely worked on something that's kept you up all night, and here he is. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the interview segment of the Great Lakes Horror Company podcast. Today's guest is Mike McCarty. He is a relatively new writer who's been in the entertainment industry for over 25 years. He's worked as an artist at one of the top makeup effects companies in the film business, KNBFX Group, which we're going to be talking about. Uh, we're also going to be talking about his writing. He's a Horror Writers Association member. His, uh, his first novel came out short ago, and he's got several short stories under his belt. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me. Now, for for the people that haven't had a chance to uh, to see your book yet, can you give us an idea about your first novel and uh, and just walk us through 
some of what people can expect. Yeah, it's uh, I've always been a fan of werewolves. And I never really felt werewolves were done any kind of cool justice. I mean, some of my favorite werewolves in the past were like, you know, from the Howling and American Werewolf in London. But too many times people just morph into wolves and hop away. And that was very, very uninteresting to me. So I decided I wanted to do a werewolf origin tale. And uh, I thought about, um, first I actually wrote a biker werewolf short story. And then I thought, well, these guys met somewhere. So let's say... Uh, uh, werewolves don't really age, so we'll take it back to World War II, and we'll make them Nazis, and we'll have them meet back then. And then I thought, no, that's not far enough. And I just started thinking about uh, Hitler and, and all the occult stuff he was into, and uh, the Nazi using the Golden Eagle standard, which also uh, was used a lot in Rome, and it just, was just a lot of similar imagery. And I thought, why has nobody ever made a book or a story out of Romulus and Remus is the first werewolves. You know, they were the founders of Rome. They were the twins found uh, suckling at the teat of the she-wolf. And I thought, it's kind of obvious that this needs to happen, yet no one's really done it. So I just started to do it. And that's what the origin story is. It's about the birth of Rome and the birth of werewolves and the first two werewolves. One's good, one's bad. And uh, it's a little like, I, I describe it to people the the one sentence the one sentence pitch is essentially Anne Rice's Vampire Chronicles meets Highlander but with werewolves. <laughs> that's I've I've started the book and that's pretty accurate. It's uh, Werewolf Bloodlines Book One Gemini Rising. Uh, that's available from Bad Moon Books. Now there's a lot of history in this book. Are you a history buff? Are there certain trains to history that you follow, or where did you get all the research done for this? As a kid, history was always one of my favorite classes. You know, I was not into math all that much. And in history, just there was something about it. And I just, I loved it. And so that was what I was always drawn to. And I, I do find myself being drawn to historical uh, horror and historical fiction. And uh, yeah, I just, I researched the hell out of it. You know, Google's your friend. And, and uh, I got a ton of books and, and read a lot of stuff and just uh, extrapolating from that because, uh, in some of the time frames I'm working in, there actually isn't a lot of information, so I'm kind of having to make a lot of things up. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, it's it's a lot of fun, and it's it's an amazing amount of work, probably more than I would care at times. But uh, I think uh, in the end, it's such a, a gratifying feeling to put something out that I'm proud of, and that I know I spent a lot of time on, and and and, and you know worked my ass off on it. It really uh, really makes me feel pretty good. Now, you also work as an artist, but in terms of this book, there's actually a lot of art in certain editions of the book. Um, what, yes. How did that come about? Who are the artists that contributed, and what are the editions that people can find the additional artwork in? Uh, if you buy it from Bad Moon Books, you get the artwork. Mm -hmm. Part of my deal with them was uh, the first printing of the book, whether it be the hardcover or the trade paperback, would have the artwork in it. Now, the hardcover, which sold out long ago, I'm sure you can find it on Amazon maybe, or I'm sorry, uh, eBay, um, that had a different cover. Uh, but other than that, the artwork inside is the same. There was actually uh, a one image I did that was a, a drawing of a door that me and all the other artists, artists signed, and that was in the special hardcover edition too. So that, that little gem you'd get if you come across that copy. But um, that, I just uh, I wanted to 
go to a lot of my friends in the makeup effects industry and even other people I didn't know, like uh, Jack McCain, and uh, and say, hey, you know, uh, I've got this thing, this story. Here's a chunk of a chapter. Why don't you draw something out of this chapter, whatever you want? And then they would just send me an idea and say, what do you think of this? And I go, oh, that's great. And I wanted all the artwork to be different. I didn't want anything, everything to look exactly the same. I just basically said, here's how the werewolves should look. Think of the howling, think bipeds, and, and make it cool. So if, if you look at the artwork in the book, it's all sort of very different. You can tell it's, it's, it's drawn by different people in, in different styles. Oh, absolutely. There's there's some really distinct looks in there. Now, are these people that you've worked with in film and TV, uh, visual artists? How did you how did you pull this group together for the project? Yeah, a lot of them are people I work with at uh, at Can VFX Group, um, and some of them were people that do uh, book uh, cover art. Nice. And I understand that someone that you work with was also the one that uh, spawned the idea of the werewolf biker gang. What did she think of the finished product? Uh, she thought it was great. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's yeah, give credit where credit is due. Who was that? <laughs> uh, her name is is uh, Lindsay, and um, she uh, she worked at the shop for a really long time. And her name's Lindsay Vivian. She uh, she was our runner at the shop, and she when I first started writing, because you know I wrote a bunch of scripts, right? Everyone in Hollywood's got a script or five that they're working on. And you show it to somebody and you're like, hey, check out my script. And they're like, oh, yeah, this is really cool. I'm going to show it to so-and-so. And then that rarely ever happens. So I just got tired of writing things that people weren't going to read. So I spoke to Greg Nicotero, my boss, and I said, hey, do you know anybody in the publishing industry? And he said, talk to Del Howison. And I talked to Del, and he had a writer's group, and I joined it, and I started to immediately start writing short stories. And the first short story was Lindsay's idea, where she comes up to me and goes, hey, why don't you do a wear-biker thing? Because I'm a biker, and I'm like, yeah, of course, I love the idea. So I started it, and that's how it sort of spawned into the whole novel. So yeah, she's, uh, she's responsible for it. Now, because you work so much in uh, in film and television, creating these amazing effects, when you're writing, has that had any effect on how you describe what the what the reader is supposed to be seeing? Has it? Do you think that it's affected the way that you try and help them visualize your world? Yeah, I'm absolutely a very uh, visual writer. When I, when I write it, I'm picturing it kind of as a movie in my head. I think probably a lot of writers are the same, but I know for me, I really envision it like almost in camera angles too and close-ups and how things would look. And um, I've been told by, by different people that a lot of my werewolf transformations and stuff are all pretty like, cool, <laughs> I guess, for lack of a better word. And that uh, they're very visual and very exciting in like a almost kind of makeup effects type way. So yeah, absolutely. I think there's a ton of influence from, from my life and my work in, in how I describe things. They're very, very visual, very sinewy, very juicy. Now, let's talk about some of your special effects work now. You've, you've worked on so many really popular films and TV shows. Kill Bill uh, 1 and 2, Sin City 1 and 2, The Mist, uh, The Walking Dead, and Breaking Bad. What have been some of your favorite projects uh, in your time as a special effects artist? Well, I bounced around the effects in industry for about five years, and I landed at uh, K&B, where I'm currently at, 
back in uh, 94. And that was done from dusk till dawn. And uh, those guys said, uh, you know, it's really pretty much feast or famine in my industry. You know, you, you go where the work is. So you work at a company for three or four weeks or five weeks till the project's over, and then you're unemployed and you have to find another job. So I, I landed at K&B and, uh, on Dust Till Dawn, and they said uh, we got about six months' worth of work, and uh, they still haven't quite let me go. So I've been there like 22 years now. And um, what, what was the original question? Uh, some of your favorite projects. Oh, okay. Favorite projects. Yeah, yeah. Because I work at KNB, it's we. They have such a huge resume of stuff that they've been involved in. I mean, there are times when we're doing nine movies at the same time. So that's how my resume grew so quickly is just being at this gigantic shop. Um, but some of the favorites, definitely. Uh, anytime I worked with Eli Roth, going on set for uh, Hostel Two, we were in Prague for two months. That's an amazing time. Uh, doing all of Alex Aja's movies and going on set for those are always a, a great time. I was in Romania with him for a couple of months. I uh, did Lake Havasu and uh, Piranha with Alex Aja as well. Um, Sin City was, a, was a, a favorite one too, just because the finished product was one of those things that I was so proud later to say, oh yeah, I had something to do with that. Oh, and incredibly and, unique uh, as well, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, especially at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, in the, the, the Grindhouse movies, I'm in the Thanksgiving trailer, and that's pretty cool. <laughs> Doing a little Hitchcock appearing in the film? I, I quite often, you know, you could play a game, spot Mike McCarty, and you'll, you'll probably find me in about uh, six to ten different films. And uh, some of, sometimes it's really obvious, like uh, Horns. Uh, you can see me sitting at a bar talking to uh, Heather Graham. And uh, uh, I have a big cameo in the Book of Eli, too, and uh, a pretty good cameo in Piranha where I accidentally tear a girl in half with uh, Neville Page, who is a <laughs> designer and one of the judges on Face Off. Now, Hostel contains one of the most uncomfortable scenes that I've ever seen in film, which is the Achilles tendon snapping at the beginning of the film. Did you have something to do with that? <laughs> <laughs> Am I blaming you for that? <laughs> No, no, no. It's that's not. It's got nothing to do with me. Um, all right, we're good I then. Was seeing it all happen, yeah, and I, and I know how it went down. Uh, yeah, that's a pretty. That's a pretty vicious. That's a pretty vicious moment. Yeah, the, that was an unrelenting film. Actually, a lot of the films that you've worked on have been pretty damn hardcore. So that leads me to ask because when you're watching different films, there's some films where you know, you know, the blood geyser fountains, and it's kind of farcical and fun. There's other ones that are trying to have really great effects but it seems like the budget's a little bit stretched. So what, what are some of the hardest effects when you're trying to go for realism to actually capture on film? It seems like skin and blood seem to be a little bit difficult to reproduce, but you've clearly done a lot of great work uh, with Walking Dead and, and other features that you've done. Uh, so if you can just let, let us know what are some of the more difficult ones and, and the way that you get around transiting those effects from what they look like in reality to what they look like on film. Well, for years, <clears throat> the shop is a pretty big place, right? We got about, at any time, there's like 35 people that work there, sculptors, mold makers, painters, um, uh, fabricators, uh, seamers, 
hair people, and we all kind of have our tasks. So we all sort of pull together to create one effect. Uh, rarely do you take something and run with it from start to finish. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll have a sculptor that that does a sculpture, and then the mold makers take over and then they mold their piece and then the foam guys run the foam and then the seamers seam it and then it comes to to me and I'll paint it or one of the other painters and then it goes to set and somebody applies it. Now uh, uh, all the there's a lot of different. Uh, I think that some of the more challenging things these days has to do with uh, HD and the fact that it's really hard to hide any anything. You know, because the new HD cameras, they can see everything. They can see every little blemish, every little edge. You know, if the paint's not right or if the object is too shiny or if the blood color's wrong. And even a lot of those digital cameras, the reds are a little bit different. So sometimes we'll actually do blood color tests with the cameras to see which color of blood's going to work the best. And like people like Quentin Tarantino, they have a specific idea in mind of what they want to see like real specific he doesn't want anything digitally uh tweaked at all so everything has to be as they would do it in the 70s you know it all has to be in camera and he loves that orangey kind of uh, theatrical looking blood because that's the blood he grew up with and so we make that blood it's called low light blood and it shows up really well in low light situations so yeah, I think there's a lot of different challenges, um, and we're always growing in, in the the industry and, and striving forward to do different things. Like uh, we're working with silicones and and uh, gelatins and and other things to get uh, sort of a, a different look, because in the old days everything was done with uh, foam latex. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's my understanding that that those older props don't really last. Yeah, foam crumbles after after a few years. It tends to uh, tends to break down and get a little crispy. You know, it's it's nice and spongy at the beginning, like a Nerf ball. But, but uh, if you leave a, a, a Nerf football outside over a summer, it's going to get kind of crispy and cracky and, and lose some of its uh, sponginess. So yeah, that that does happen to that stuff. Now, let's talk about growing up in Michigan. Michigan has a pretty good haunted history. Did some of that inform uh, where you were going to go later in life, your interest in, uh, in the oogie boogie and the scarier things in life? I think it's not necessarily where I grew up because we jumped around a lot. So, you know, every four years we were kind of in a new location and every location's got its new set of stories and, and wives tales and stuff, which is cool. Um, I, I love researching that stuff all over the country because everyone's got their own version of the boogeymen and haunted bridges and stuff like that. But I think a lot of it has to do with my mom. My mom was really into horror movies. She loved, you know, the, the classic 50s and 60s stuff. And she would always watch it, but never wanted to watch it alone. So she always tagged me to do it. And that's kind of where I started to get you know, into all of that was from her. And then, of course, Halloween was my favorite time of the year. It may not be my favorite time of the year now, but that's only because that's the one time of year where you get 10 or 15 phone calls from people you haven't heard from in 11 months. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. Of course, you'd be in high demand as, hey, buddy, I was thinking about dressing as this for Halloween. Exactly. Can you lend me a few things? Do you happen to have a severed head in your garage? You probably do, though. 
<laughs> I got like seven or eight. <laughs> I figured. <laughs> so what was the first horror movie that you watched with your mother or on your own that you lost sleep over? Was there one that, that really scared the shit out of you and you thought, you know what, this is for me? I think when I was a kid, uh, the omen affected me. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, and and I believe I saw it on regular TV, so it was probably, you know, uh, edited to, to shit. And uh, uh, I don't even know what it, what was in it that sort of. I, I remember the the skeletons of the jackals when they find them and they're being chased by the dogs in the graveyard. That was pretty terrifying, and the guy losing his head from the plate of glass. That was pretty terrifying too. Mm-hmm. But uh, now, my mom's favorite movie. You know, once I got into this industry, she was like totally excited. You know, she's like, oh, my God, that's the coolest thing ever. You know, she would like John Carpenter's The Thing and stuff like that. And there were times when we would watch that together. And But I remember for the longest time, my mom's favorite movie was Silence of the Lambs. Whenever I told people that, they're like, geez, really? What the fuck is wrong with your mom? <laughs> <laughs> that's a pretty dark one. It's pretty deep stuff. Yeah, yeah. But she's uh, she just she just likes that kind of stuff, and you know it's not that she's twisted or or a strange individual. Love you, mom, because you're probably listening to this. And um, yeah, it's just uh, it's a lot of fun. Well, you know they've done the research. Uh, people that read or watch horror, uh, it's half and half, male and female, split audience. So absolutely, she- absolutely, and I'm finding that a lot of uh, women are starting to break into my industry, where it was a sort of a male dominated industry for a lot of years. It's really, really opened its doors, and we're getting more and more uh, women that are interested in doing makeup effects, and not just like the makeup portion of it, but like the dirty, gritty uh, mold making and and sculpting kind of stuff too. Now, in, we you touched on Halloween. Have you ever created a haunted house? Yes. Uh, usually, the kind of thing you do in a garage for right around the Halloween, you know, night for the trick or treaters. Uh, I love to terrorize the kids. Now, now I live in a place where it's a lot harder for me to do that. Cause I live kind of a, a little bit more secluded and we don't actually get any trick or treaters. Uh, I, I live in an apocalyptic ready, um, compound almost. <laughs> <laughs> do you have a bunker? Is it like uh, 10 Cloverfield? Not yet. Yet, but I'm working on it. <laughs> coming, coming soon. That's not a spoiler. Everyone knows that that's what that movie's about. Just, just before I get any shitty comments under the podcast about that one. Exactly. Everyone knows that's where they are in the movie. All yeah. right. Now, before we go, um, let me know what people should expect from Bloodlines Book Two and the series as it progresses, because you've you've created a really sprawling universe for these werewolves. Where are they going to go from there? Well, book one is all about uh, the birth of Rome and the birth of the the clans, essentially. So book two, uh, it takes place in um, Alexander the Great uh, as he's taking over Persia. And some of the characters um, are with him at that time frame. And it goes through uh, uh, Hannibal Barca uh, and him t- taking uh, werewolves and uh, uh, elephants over the mountains and um then book three is going to be julius caesar era rome and they'll be uh shortly after that uh, i actually have an idea for a story 
grade two, whether or not it'll make it in that book or it'll just be a, a separate short story about werewolf Caligula because Caligula was a crazy motherfucker. And why wouldn't he be a werewolf? I, I find myself going through all of the, you know, different eras of history and looking at um, certain characters and people and, and, and dictators and stuff and, and thinking how well they would work as a werewolf bad guy and who would have turned them and where they would go from there. So, uh, yeah, I, I basically have, have gone through history and done an, an insane timeline that goes from the birth of Rome until now, highlighting major points throughout history and then deciding where my allegiances and my characters and clans were going to be in that era. So that's what you can expect is a whole lot of books about history and horror and things where you're going to go, oh, Oh, that's cool. And you'll go look something up. And hopefully I did just enough research that you won't call bullshit on what I write. Well, you know, it's fertile ground because, as you said, a lot of people have dealt with werewolves, but um, they're not as sort of refined or intelligent or have as much autonomy, maybe, as the werewolves that you've created. So you've actually got a lot of room to grow this entire Bloodlines universe. So I look forward to reading it. Yeah, well, thanks, thanks. I'm having a good time writing it, and it's uh, it's going it's going really well. And actually, um, you know, this isn't this isn't quite a spoiler, and I can't say much about it. But I do have a team of people uh, put together that uh, want to turn book one into a TV show. So uh, we're we're working on that in the pilot script uh, as we speak. So keep your fingers crossed, and perhaps maybe around the time of book two coming out who knows maybe book one will be a tv series and they'll kind of go hand in hand like game of thrones yeah and like george R. R. martin you're gonna have to race like hell to keep those books going to keep up with the series huh <laughs> that sounds good to me yeah it's, it's not the worst thing that could happen <laughs> thank you so much for joining us mike uh for our listeners you can find mike online at mike mccarty.net that's m-c-c-a-r-t-y.net uh and you can see his work um on Netflix, on AMC, you can get his book online from Bad Moon Books. I mean, there's there's a lot of Mike McCarty to go around. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for joining us today. You can find Mike online at mikemccarty.net. That's M-I-K-E-M-C-C-A-R-T-Y.net. Now for some upcoming events of interest to horror writers and readers. Hi, I hope everyone is all excited to come to Ad Astra in Toronto, April 29th to May 1st. Uh, a lot of horror writers will be there. Uh, we don't, won't have a specific table, but you'll probably find us drinking in the bar or on panels. And the World Horror Convention is that same weekend as well, April 28th to May 1st, uh, where you meet lovely horror writers such as Brian Keane and Jeff Strand. Uh, so if you're not in Toronto, you better be in Utah to get your horror fix. Also, we have coming up StokerCon 2016, the very first convention from the Horror Writers Association, and that's at the Flamingo Hotel. We will be running panels and classes at Horror University and all sorts of fantastic guests of honor. And of course, the grand finale of the weekend is the Stoker Award Banquet, where we'll find out who gets to win the coveted Brand Stoker House Awards. 
Anyways, join us next time for our all-comedy episode, Blood and Laughs Together at Last, with special guest, award-winning artist and author, Monster Matt Patterson. Until next time, remember, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. <laughs>